testing now. Testing now. I don't know if this is Mike Martin's voice, but this is testing to make sure we can all hear at the back. Can you hear me at the back? Yes. Good. I think we're okay. This is a nice loud one. Hopefully it doesn't get too loud. Do you come in? There's a couple of seats at the front here. Apologies for the late start, but the, there was an overrun in the main meeting, so we were asked to start a little later. Yes, there's some seats at the front here. Uh, which uh, There's one, two, three, four seats at the front. Come on, Steve. <laughs> come on in. Do come in. There's, there's another three seats at the front here and some dotted around. Morning, Silas. There's still some, a couple of seats, three seats at the front here. If anybody is looking for a seat, there's some seats at the front. Good morning, everyone. I do hope you all slept reasonably well. Um, just uh, as an information point, this is the seminar on bringing good news to the poor and learning to live it out in our local churches. And Martin Charlesworth is going to uh, come in a moment to talk about that. Uh, just to say, you'll find on your chairs, um, there's a handout, which is... Uh, relevant to today's meeting, it's the slides that uh, were on the original PowerPoint. But uh, those are so you can follow that and keep that and take that away with you as a reminder. And also an invitation to the Jubilee Plus Conference in November, uh, which uh, no doubt Martin will refer to, and uh, just as your personal invitation to that. Um, so... Martin, as many of you will know, leads the Jubilee Plus uh, team, which, as the poster says, is there to help UK churches, gospel-centered churches, to support those who are in poverty or experiencing need and uh, speaking to those with influence on their behalf uh, so that there's a megaphone from the church to those with influence and also a listening ear right at ground level, at local church level, where people are really in touch with everyday life. So that's Jubilee Plus. You'll hear all about that. So it is my great pleasure to introduce Martin. Um, I can't do better than the introduction that Guy Miller gave Martin this morning as we were coming down to breakfast. And, and uh, there's gives away we weren't on site. Sorry about that. Um, but he, so Guy was introducing him to some overseas visitors. And I've kind of just tried to jot down my memory of what he said because I thought it was so good and great coming from Guy. So Guy said, Martin is the man who is the go-to man for everything to do with church action on social justice for all the new frontier spheres. So Jubilee Plus is something that all the UK uh, apostolic spheres support and, uh, and, and have a commission really to carry this work forward and to increase our, our capacity for that. Um, so uh, he's also honoured as a Bible teacher, uh, an author, and theologian. Uh, I thought that I loved the, the last bit, which is absolutely true and is my recommendation of Martin to you. He said, he's a man of integrity. He lives out what he teaches. So with that, without more ado, let's welcome Martin to the stage. Well, good morning, everybody. Isn't it wonderful having seminars in tents? There are so many things that can happen. Some of them happened yesterday, if you were here yesterday. Um, a lot of that's to do with sound. And um, 
whenever I, I'm tra I travel around speaking at a lot of conferences, and when people say, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this seminar and it's in a tent, I immediately think, aha, got to think about a few things here, because all sorts of things could happen. Um, but I'm going to speak up. Okay, yeah. Thank you for coming. And in this session, I want to be very practical. My story is very simple. I'm an ordinary middle-class kid who had a good education, was going to go into teaching. God hijacked that, and I ended up in church leadership. On the journey uh, between um, a private education and church leadership, I ended up working in South Africa in the gap year in the 70s and had a number of other experiences that had a very profound effect on my understanding of the gospel and social justice. And I realized that I needed to develop an evangelical understanding of social justice from a very early age um, as a Christian. Then I put it into practice in my church. For 20 years, I led a church in Shropshire called Barnabas Community Church. We developed a community center. We developed lots of different projects which I basically initiated, and we started one of the first food banks in the country that predates the Trussell Trust by a number of years. Um, and this was the base on the basis of a prophetic word that God had given me um, about debt and food poverty. So I was just trundling along 10 years ago in a local church doing my stuff, and the New Frontiers UK team, as it was then, before they went into spheres, which included Guy Miller, made an invitation to me. They said, can you help us nationally to um, in help our churches engage with social justice issues and with poverty? And this was a real surprise to me. And But I decided I'm, I'll, I'll go with this. And we started what is now a separate charity called Jubilee Plus. If you're not familiar with our work, go online, look at the website. It's on your, on your notes there. Um, this was a step of faith, involved a fundamental change in my ministry, involved me eventually uh, giving up leading my church because I didn't have enough time and capacity, handing it over to one of my colleagues. And I've been on the road doing all sorts of different things, and it has been a very remarkable journey. We've run annual conferences for nine years, and we'll be in Bristol, as Pete said, we've been all over the country, we've had hundreds, thousands of people at our conferences and seen God move in remarkable ways. We've been able to connect with all sorts of very significant Christian organizations around the country and work with them strategically. We've been able to provide support for churches individually uh, and in regions. We've advised apostolic teams and worked with them. And I provide theological material, um, which I think is very important, and I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, and God has opened up amazing doors for our team, and particularly my colleague, Natalie Williams, some of you may know of her, who I've, uh, with whom I've uh, co-written two books. Um, uh, she has had amazing media opportunities and been on BBC television, BBC News, all sorts of Christian media, ITV, um, talking about a variety of social justice issues. Also, more recently, we've had uh, direct access to the Department of Work and Pensions. So we are in direct discussion with Amber Rudd, the minister, face-to-face, -face, private meetings, and also with the most senior service civil servant in her department about benefits issues. So these are just a few snapshots of things that we are involved with. I could spend the whole hour talking about it, but that's not really the purpose. But just to give you a bit of, bit of background um, to where we are now. This has involved writing a couple of books both of which are in the bookshop, and there's a third one coming next year, uh, co-authored with Natalie Williams, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. Um, I'd recommend that if you haven't seen it. That's about attitudes. We'll come to that in a moment. And A Church for the Poor, uh, which came out uh, two or three years ago and um, has uh, been um, an influential book in a variety of different denominational contexts as well as amongst our own people. You see uh, my team, you can see a quick photo of them there, um, uh, which includes Pete Linden and his wife Sue, um, and we're really grateful for their support. Now, the purpose of this seminar is not so much to talk about us, but to talk about you and your situation. So there's one little 
um, slide there, or a little illustration there, which is going to be the basis for what I'm going to say to you. It's the one on the bottom left. I'm going to talk to you about some of the things that we've learned during the last nearly 10 years um, and some of the things that I think have helped churches most to really get strategic and engaged with social action. And I'm hoping that every single one of these issues will be um, helpful to you, but at least one of them will be a key for you. You might be a leader, you might be an activist, you might be a visionary, you might have ideas, um, you might be just a worker, you might be an, an intercessor, whoever you are, I hope that something of this will speak to you. Now the first one, the first point is about conviction. And this, this point is about biblical conviction. Now my um, perspective is that as an evangelical movement, which Commission is and the wider New Frontiers mo movement is, and which I'm completely committed to, one of the most important things when we get involved socially is we're not just getting involved with things that are trendy or things or out of a sense of social guilt. Um, those things can be good, useful along the journey, but there's a far greater fundamental reality that we should be grasping as our foundation. And I'll summarize it. I teach this in a number of different ways in different contexts. I'm going to, and I will be coming back to this at our conference in Bristol if you come to it when I do a talk there. But I want to summarize it by just very briefly mentioning to you uh, a, a couple of keynote verses which New Frontiers, Family of Churches, more widely, before the sphere started, uh, took as a keynote. And th this is foundational for me. You'll probably be familiar with this, but in Galatians 2, um, verses 9 and 10, we have Paul summarizing the outcome of a very interesting discussion he and his colleague Barnabas had with some other apostles led by Peter. Um, they had a special meeting because Paul was working amongst the Gentile, uh, Gentiles and Peter was working amongst the Jews in Judea largely and around Jerusalem area. And a rumor had reached Peter to say, Paul's preaching a different gospel. Um, and so they had a meeting just to check out that they were preaching the same message. And the outcome of the meeting has a surprising twist because they actually had a doctrinal discussion about the exact presentation of the gospel. And they came to the conclusion, we're all on the same page. There's nothing to worry about. But you'll notice an interesting twist at the end of these two verses, which you may be familiar with. James... Peter and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now the surprise here is that the poor was not the topic of the conversation. It wasn't what they were talking about. They were talking about whether they were preaching the same gospel because some people had come in and challenged that. But Peter had a very, very interesting thought because when he planted churches amongst Jews, because the Jews had the background of the Old Testament and because of their spiritual environment and because they knew Yahweh, the God of Israel, before they became believers in Christ, they instinctively considered the needs of the poor in their communities when they planted churches. They had the law of Moses. They had all those resources. And Peter thought, now I wonder what's happening with Paul's churches amongst the Greeks and the Romans and all the other ethnic groups that are operating in Asia Minor and elsewhere who do not have the Old Testament, do not have the God of Israel, do not have a culture of charity socially, which is true historically, will they remember the poor in their communities when Paul is planting his churches in a different ethnic group? And if they don't, it's going to be an inauthentic Christianity. Do you get me? Peter was worried. But he didn't have anything to be worried about because Paul was going to make that a priority. 
Now, this text is interesting because in those cities and places where Paul and was going, about 50% of the population would have been at a marginal level of existence or below. No welfare state, very little charity. The poor were everywhere. Peter's question for apostolic Christianity is, we cannot have an apostolic gospel without an apostolic application for the poor. You simply can't divide the two. Now that, in a nutshell, is my biblical foundation. Now we could extend it and develop it in all sorts of different ways. Are you with me on that? You probably wouldn't be in this tent if you wouldn't. You'd be in another tent thinking about something else. But we have to convince our people that it is not just the responsibility of families and the state and the education system and the NHS to care for the needs of people. It is actually the responsibility of the church, the people who are most marginal in our communities, whoever they are. So conviction matters. Biblical conviction matters, and it's an ongoing motivator as you go on the journey if you go back to your biblical foundations. That's number one. Number two, calling. In each church's situation, calling will come about largely through three different factors, in my experience. Personal experience of church members or leaders, number one. Number two, community circumstances. And number three, prophetic leading. The question is, what should we do? There's a hundred things we could do in our town or city, but what should we actually do as a church? Sometimes some things have happened to people personally that lead them on a journey of having compassion in a particular area, something they've suffered or experienced or in their family. Sometimes something happens in the community. In our particular church, I'll give you an example very quickly. We had a family in the church where one of the children, young boy, was killed in a road accident outside the house as a family, leading to bereavement in the family and particularly for the siblings. And out of that incident, to cut a long story short, we started a child bereavement service for the town which now works with six or eight schools directly to help children who have had a bereavement. That came out of a community circumstance. It was an unexpected adventure. But God has blessed it. And sometimes we have a prophetic calling in our church. The prophets, the leaders, some activists, senses the call of God in a particular area. So calling matters. Conviction matters. We need a biblical conviction, but we need a sense of calling because otherwise the church ends up in this position. I've had many pastors come to me and say, I'm tearing my hair out for all sorts of reasons. Because... Joe Blogg says we should be doing this, homelessness. Fred Smith says that we should be helping the refugees. Frieda Smith says we should be doing food bank, etc., etc. In other words, the people in the church are pressurizing the leaders in a variety of different directions, and it's an unstructured conversation, and the leader doesn't know what to do. And the leaders, if they're unwise, will just concede to everyone's plans and let them get on with it and hope for the best and try not to get too involved until something disastrous happens when it all goes wrong. Much better to own the process by hearing the voice of God, interpreting priorities, deciding which to go for, marshalling your resources and really going for it. So calling matters. Now the third area this is a really subtle one, and we in Jubilee Plus have learnt a lot about this uh, in the last few years. Heart. What we've noticed is that people can often be very motivated in theory about caring for the poor, but as soon as they get close to people who are struggling, they have second thoughts and inner prejudices or insecurities come to the surface 
in the delivery of the work and the project and people drop off and there's confusion, sometimes conflict over should we help, are these people really worth helping? And we need to address this in two different ways. One is what I call proximity. We don't want to just help people from a distance from a position of power. There is a journey many of us are on in our lives where we are becoming friends with and close to and living lives with people who are suffering and are poor and are needy in one area or another. And can I tell you, this is a good journey to be on. And it's called the journey of proximity. And it changes our attitudes because we then begin to understand more deeply why people simply cannot cope with life. We find out more deeply what the issues are and sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes it is their fault, but very often things are being driven by deeper issues and underlying vulnerabilities which we've never had to face in terms of poverty, self-esteem, racial issues, abuse that's gone on, whatever it might be. So we need to walk the journey of proximity. This happened to me very dramatically when I was at an elite university doing my degree. And on as I walked up and down the high streets regularly, there were always homeless people there asking the students, a good thing to do, ask students for money because they're always more generous than everybody else. And there was one guy who was always there. And I spoke to him a lot. And he was homeless. And I got to know his name. We had lots of conversations. I I gave him the time of day. One day he said to me, Martin, I've been housed. And then he said something really surprising. He said, will you come to my house? And I was the only person he said that to. Because we'd formed a little friendship. So I, I went to his, quote, house which was a basement flat, one-bedroom flat, that the council had given him, filled with cigarette smoke and not a lot else. And I visited him regularly for two years of my university, and we became friends. What happened was proximity. I crossed over the threshold, and he crossed over the threshold to me, and then when it came to leave university, we had a very emotional parting. I was saying goodbye to all my uni friends. But when I was saying goodbye to my friend Brian, I thought, this is going to be hard. And as I said to you, I'm not going to be seeing you again. He, the tears came to his eyes. But they also came to my eyes. My homeless friend was really my friend. We prayed together, I um, explained Christ to him. So we need proximity. And we've written about it in this book, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. We've analyzed media attitudes to poverty. And we've uh, identified social attitudes and Christian attitudes. And this is a challenging book, but I'm inviting you to consider this book if you need to think this through or help other people think it through. We noticed, doing an academic media survey of a particular television program uh, some years ago, that the voice of the poor is very rarely given in the media unless it is supporting some other existing agenda that the media has. And we are putting people in another category. And that needs to change for the church. And it is changing step by step. My fourth one. Are you still with me? Okay, right. We're going through as fast as we can, and we'll have a few questions at the end. I'm just giving you highlights. These are many talks that I'm compressing into just a few bullet points. Now, some of the practical keys, some of the keys for us are that we ne obviously need to decide what, is, what are we going to focus on and develop projects, and we can talk about that in more detail in Q&A if you want to. But alongside that, we have discovered, particularly in my own church, that 
Caring for people is one thing. Let's take food bank. We've discovered that advocacy for them is another very important key. The church needs to learn the language of advocacy. Have people who are skilled in going to public authorities and saying, look, we're dealing with Joe Bloggs, and we've noticed these things, and he's been sanctioned here, or he's got this housing issue, or his family's got this issue. Can we work together? Can you see that the system is sometimes working against them? Now, we do that with our Job Center Plus staff in our town. We meet them, we talk to them, we explain cases to them, we work with them directly. We advocate, not in an aggressive way, but in a subtle and firm way to tell the story of people who are very vulnerable, to help agencies. And if you, uh, if you do it well, if you do the storytelling well, they'll often, help, they'll often collaborate with you. They're ready to collaborate. Advocacy is important. And evangelism is important too. And here's something that I've learned over the years. A great way of making social action effective is to deploy your most evangelistically gifted people in social action and not just in your other frontline evangelistic projects like Alpha. Otherwise, we create a division between social action and evangelism. See, we've got one or two people in my church who are really gifted, one or two have come out of poverty themselves, and we try and put them on the front line in relationships with people from similar backgrounds. Get evangelistically gifted people informally, not necessarily your frontline people, in the mix of the project work you're doing, and that creates more of an open atmosphere for talking and sharing about Christ informally in whatever way is appropriate in the context. Just a thought. Otherwise... The work will consume the workers. <laughs> I think the day of Pentecost has truly come. <laughs> I feel the wind on my shoulders. I'm not even going to look behind me because it will just distract me. You see, there are just so many houses of tents. I really wouldn't have ever wanted to be one of these people who just, whose whole job was tent crusades, you know. If you, so you need to get these evangelistically gifted people involved. Um, and it's, it's, it's a real key. And we also need to believe that it's worth evangelizing people who may contribute less Im immediately to the church than more wealthy or socially adjusted people. Can I say that? We cannot make that distinction. Can I tell you another little thing I found out? If the church's heart is for the poor and it's, it's genuinely seeking to help people in whatever you're doing, there is often the remarkable blessing of God that comes on the church generally in other ways because you are following the heart of God if you do it responsibly. This can be reputation in the community. This can be people to, who join your... Some people join our church because of its reputation for social action. They're really, really proud of all the things we do. They never get involved. <laughs> I hear them talking about things that they've never actually been involved with. But they joined the church because they believed it was a good thing and they want to give their money to it. Well, I'm okay with that. I'd like to get them involved in due course. But we need to trust God, especially if you're a leader. If you're investing in these kind of things, you're not looking for an immediate return of your sort of church growth curve. That is not the primary agenda of the Holy Spirit. The primary agenda is to be authentic, apostolic, gospel, Galatians 2, 9 to 10, and God will see to the rest. That's a tough thing for a lot of leaders to believe, by the way in their hearts, but it really is worth believing it. There's a few keys, and there's a few more, but I'll leave it there. Then we have the question of what I call culture. Now, this is a very subtle issue. A church consists, by definition, of what I call a main culture, what happens in the corporate gatherings and in the formal 
um, events of the church and what the leaders say and do and that kind of thing. And the subcultures that exist within the church. Your church and my church has a main culture and subcultures. Now, can I just illustrate this to you in a very, very simple way? Let's take the subculture of the youth. So what's the youth's engagement with the worship on Sunday morning, like in your church, I wonder? Sometimes it's great, but sometimes they're saying, no, we, we, we don't like the songs. And then if you give them the songs they do like, then what do the old people begin to do? They begin to start wanting the Wesley hymns to come back again. What's this is a representation of? This is a representation of the fact there are subcultures operating in the church. Nothing wrong with that. That's how the church is meant to be. There might be racial subcultures. There might be linguistic subcultures. There might be class subcultures. But subculture becomes a critical issue when you are dealing with marginalized people or vulnerable people who cannot easily negotiate your main culture as it stands at the moment. You're going to have to help them by building some bridges and maybe modifying the culture. Let me just take one example. The Alpha Course. Almost everybody believes in the Alpha Course and uses it. We do in our church. It doesn't suit everybody. Have you noticed that? It doesn't suit some working class people who are I who either they're at home watching the telly or if they socialize, it's in the pub watching football. But to go to a meeting in an evening where someone is going to ask you to express an opinion in a group is something totally outside their social experience. So, with more marginalized people, where those issues are there, but even in a more extreme way, are we going to have to think of other ways of leading people on the Christian journey? Is the Alpha Course the only way? Did it fall down from heaven in the 1990s? and land on Mickey Gumbel's head? It's great, but it's not the only way. Any bit of subcultural work with different groups. What about people who've got English as a second language? And they're dealing with people who've just got that tremendous confidence in the English language in a group context, and they, they, they can't themselves because their English isn't good enough. Are we going to have to help them? We're going to have to get some subcultural reality of translation or uh, something in their own uh, language group for a period of time? I think you understand what I'm talking about. There's hundreds of different applications of this. But you cannot engage strategically with social action without reflecting on your main culture in the church. And there's some more reflection to be done in many churches. My sixth point. By the way, they said they're running late this morning, didn't they? But I don't think they said how late. So, you know, so I'm just feeling free here. Um, the sixth point is strategy. Can I give you four different strategies that I notice our church is adopting dealing with social action in the church. Different strategies. Number one, we're going to do some social action projects and we're going to add them onto the church. That's the basic strategy. We're now, we've now got a cap centre. We've now got this. We've now got a food bank collection plan. Standard church plus some projects, method one. Method two, standard church plus projects, but we evangelize the people on the projects. Bit more intentional. So we run a uh, teaching English language as a second language course, but then we're going to invite everybody there to the carol service or something, or the alpha course. Okay, so method two is church, social action, plus some intentional evangelism. Method three, 
when you get more numbers, more groups, more challenges, because you're really getting moving with a particular social group, is to create multiple congregations to meet some of the particular social needs that you've actually created. Now, you may never have even thought of that. Let me just give you an example of a church I know in the Midlands in a different sphere that I'm working with closely, where they've got a main congregation and they've been doing a strategic work with recovering addicts and the recovering addicts, generally speaking, have not been able to enter into the Sunday morning of the main church, so they provided a Friday evening service for them. It's worship, preaching, it's church, but it's geared to their particular needs. And that very same church also has started another congregation in a, working, a white working class estate, a very poor district because they reckon the people there, the white working class people, are not necessarily going to come to the main church. So they end up with three congregations based on strategic social outreach. I know another church that started a congregation of Eritreans because they had so many Eritrean refugees who didn't speak English. So multiple congregations is something that's beginning to happen. Now that obviously has some pluses and minuses, but it's a very interesting strategic development. And the fourth one, which we're advocating in Jubilee Plus and working with a few people who are doing, is to actually, in certain circumstances, plant new churches in poor or deprived areas. Start from scratch to create a church. We did that in my own town in 2003 in the northern part, established a separate church. Now has 80 to 100 people in it, and they're meeting a different demographic. It's a white working class area, largely. So here are four different strategies, and the question you have to ask yourself is, what is the strategy? It doesn't have to be one of those four, but those are the four main ones that I've noticed. There has to be a strategic plan as you move forward. My final point, number seven. This is a critical one. Capacity. This is where a lot of people stumble. Because we have to have the capacity to engage and sustain the things we're doing, and a lot of churches start things and then it falls by the wayside during a period of time. So I want to talk to you about raising capacity and we have to do this very strategically in churches. First of all, the human capacity. Social action projects often start with volunteers. And volunteering is one of the great strengths of our churches. We have an amazing capacity in volunteering, but volunteering has a limit of its effectiveness as things grow. You know what it's like with volunteers. They can take the day off or the week off or the month off and no one can hold them to account. They can go on holiday for a long period of time, especially if they're retired. There's nothing wrong with that. But there comes a point where you need to mix volunteering with paid staffing in order to have enough backbone to manage and support the volunteers so they don't get too stressed and feel an ever-increasing emotional burden coming from the central leadership team as things grow, but they are the volunteers and it's all falling on their shoulders and they're not even getting paid for it. And it becomes a very, very stressful point. And I want to add a theological issue into this. I want to advocate a very strong theology of the deacon, the biblical deacon. I don't mean the Baptist deacon, the Anglican deacon, and all the things that are, all the ghosts that are in the back of some of your minds. I'm talking about a biblical deacon. A biblical deacon is an authorized leader of a department in a church which is very often focused on pastoral or compassionate or mercy ministries in biblical and post-biblical times. It's an officer of the church who is not an elder. It's a man or a woman who, or a team of deacons who have real capacity to lead 
develop as well as do the work. And we need to raise up those people as projects grow and find ways of financing them as required. That is a key. They need to be wholly committed to the church, wholly signed up to the vision of the church, but authorized and released to develop things which elders characteristically don't have the time or skills to do, and if they get too involved, things sometimes go wrong. I'm not looking at anyone there. I'm just thinking of myself. If he's not characteristically the primary gift of an elder. So the human resources are very important. And if a church tries to do things that it does not have the human capacity to sustain, there will be disappointment and difficulty and things will slow down and stop and there could be a major crisis of confidence. That's the judgment of leaders. I remember a time once when I said to a very gifted person who wanted to start a project in my church, no. She was devastated. Why? Because we did not have the volunteering capacity to support her. Three years later, we started it and it's still going today. The judgment call is important. Human resources, financial resources, we need to get smarter in finding ways of financing social action projects. There are a variety of ways of doing this. You can create core giving uh, through monthly giving to particular projects. You can set up separate institutions within your church, separate charities. That really helps. You can get grant fundraising. You can work with authorities. You can have major donors. You can ask me some questions about this maybe, but we have to be really strategic to find funds and not try and do ambitious projects on a shoestring because at some point the shoestring will snap and you won't be able to continue. And then there's physical resources, so human resources, financial resources, physical resources. Primarily I'm talking about buildings. Buildings really, really matter for most projects, don't they? Not everything, but most things. So if we have an ambition to do something, we should be asking God to provide us the buildings. We may not own them necessarily. It's not about ownership necessarily. It's about access to and use of buildings. So we have to rethink the use of church buildings. We maybe have to buy other buildings. We maybe have to lease other properties. Maybe we need to talk to the council. Um, God has opened up for many churches some amazing buildings. As soon as you've got the physical resource, you think, oh, yeah, we can do things now. We had a situation in our church some years ago where the food bank was based in our main building and we just did not have the room. It's a, it's a food bank that runs for the whole town, about 100,000 people. There's no other food bank in the whole town. And then an opportunity came up to buy the adjacent property to our church, which had two buildings on it, one of which was ideally suited. So we made a really big decision in the church. We're going to dig deep into our pockets and raise enough money to buy the site next to the church. It was a tremendously difficult thing to do. But people responded because we said we have a vision to grow our social action. And so once we bought the site in 2014, we dedicated one of the buildings entirely to food bank and other related uh, issues. And we, we created about five times as much room as we previously had. And guess what? The project flourished and grew. And God, in many ways, will help us with buildings. But we need the physical resources. And finally, under this seventh issue, perhaps the most important of all, spiritual resources. Two things in spiritual resources are critical. One is clear vision. What are we actually trying to do in our church? Who are we trying to reach and how? People need to understand the vision and own it. And secondly, prayer. 
In our church, we have a weekly prayer meeting which is dedicated entirely to our social projects along with other priorities. Every single week, we are praying and I consider social action and overturning injustice and poverty as a front line of spiritual warfare. It's not easy. We must not just work, we must pray. Say, Lord, help us. And then he intervenes. So under this capacity issue, we cannot underestimate the importance of human resources, financial resources, physical resources, particularly buildings, other things as well, and spiritual resources. Now, most of that material is in some way or another in this book. So there's a quick and easy advert for me. Um, I've taken many of the points from there. So we've written down a lot of this, but I wanted to share it with you in this context because I want to encourage you. Some of you will have come here discouraged and confused and uncertain. Some of you motivated, some of you pushing forward, some of you not. And I want you to take some encouragement from this seminar. And I want you to try and identify which thing particularly speaks to you and, and really take it away and work on it in your church with your leaders in whatever context is appropriate. Right, what I'm going to do now is we're going to, I'll finish talking now, we're going to have some Q&A, and Pete is going to take the microphone round in just a minute. So thanks for listening. And my question is, what do you recommend for church involvement with the poor abroad? Where there's so much need, how do you prioritise one particular project over others? My question is, please would you pray for us who have a heart to do this work? We're all here to listen and, and do it. And would you pray for us, please? Okay.
you've talked primarily about the work within a church. What about when it's a group of churches in town? of links in have you worked with other charities within your locality that are already providing some of those support systems With the uh, strong link between poverty and mental ill health, uh, are there any areas that are too specialist for churches to get involved with? Just some advice on you talked about um, multi congregational strategies. Um, so, is there a place to then? How would you advise them moving from that to a whole church situation when we have a diverse church, including those communities? Just to say, we have a seminar very much addressing that subject uh, on November the 16th with Adam and Karina Martin, who uh, large church in Derby, who worked a lot with refugees and welcome boxes and well now welcome churches, who at one time created a separate congregation for refugees, but have recently reintegrated that whole congregation back into their church. So they're going to be talking about that experience and that subject. So it's November the 16th. Hi, I'm from South Africa. I just wanted to find out if there's a way in which we could best answer this question because my belief is that poverty is a global issue and it cannot be localized. And I understand this is a sort of UK you know, conversation here. And I have also many, many questions. I mean, I love the talk very much, but it addressed 
some of the issues that we are faced with. You know? So maybe the question that has been asked earlier may, may need to be answered somehow. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm sure there will be lots more questions, but I just wanted to say, um, I, I had a couple of other things to say, but that Martin is now going on the road to get to the Devoted Festival, where he, he um, is, is speaking. Uh, so uh, please do uh, allow him to get, get on the way. We would love to hear from you. Um, and uh, the, the, the website is on the card, um, jubilee-plus.org. And we really do want to hear from each of you, and we really do want to uh, be able to engage with, our whole purpose it really is to engage with local churches and Christians in local churches to, to take forward the things that we feel God's laid on our hearts and on Martin's heart, which you've heard about this morning. So that's, that's number one. Uh, number two uh, is um, at two o'clock, uh, there's a tent talk, which is a... Uh, meet and uh, ask questions of uh, a team who've been doing a 24-hour uh, event called uh, Sleep Out, Speak Out, and um, they will be there to talk about why they were doing that 
and what they've learned from it and what they what have they been the big impressions of having done that and that because we mostly not everybody here by any means but mostly we live comfortable lives it's hard for us to understand what it's like to actually carry everything on your back not to be able to put anything down because you don't know how you can't keep it secure not to have a place to go to and they've had just a, a snapshot of that and I know that's got I've been speaking to one or two this morning that's going to be really instructive so at two o'clock in the tent there's a tent talk about that and I think it'll reveal some things that you know we don't normally come across so feel very warmly invited to that uh, and um, thirdly at uh, just to say two o'clock Tomorrow, no, one thirty, or rather, tomorrow, Sunday, in the tent, uh, I'm doing a tent talk on seven reasons for works of mercy. Now, probably in the tent here, you don't need to hear that, but I think it's 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 great to always know and think about the whys of what we do and and the foundations, the rocks under our feet, and why uh, this is so much part of God's wonderful goodness. Uh, is that the church? will be a source and known as a source of goodness for the people we dwell amongst. So I'd love to invite you to that at 1.30 tomorrow in the tent uh, for the tent talk there. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for living. Let's give Martin uh, a, a thank you round of applause. <laughs>